Good morning, church. It is good uh, to be with you today. Uh, we're going to get into the Word uh, quickly here. I want to encourage you to uh, open your Bibles uh, to Romans 9, if it's not already there, the passage it was just read, or uh, open your devices. Uh, you will be able to track. It's a very short passage today, but there's some complexity here, so you'll be able to track with me a lot better uh, if you've got your text open on whatever uh, device you have. Uh, some good news today and answers to prayer regarding fire and air. I mean, should we just, I don't know, clap or say thank you, God, for some blue sky and containment, uh, not fully, but containment, on uh, increased containment on the Caldor Fire and other fires in our area and cold temperatures and increased humidity. So, um, I mean, I've been praying for lightning-free rain is what I've been praying for, but I am thankful for lower humidity and cool temperatures for our firefighters and for this containment. Well, today's um, short unit of Scripture, uh, verses uh, 24 through 29 of Romans 9, Paul is continuing to respond to a couple problems that he is seeing on the ground in first century Rome, in first century Christianity, particularly in first century Jewish Christianity. We have to remind ourselves that the church was originally, initially, almost completely Jewish. And so the problems that Paul is responding to in Romans, number, in Romans chapter 9, he articulates what the, the, the problems, the disagreements that people were having are. He, and one of them is this. This is the problem that Paul's responding to. God's word had failed. This is what people were saying. God's word had failed. He chose these people, Israel. They are his chosen people, and they overwhelmingly have rejected the Messiah that he sent. And so his word has failed. That's one of the things Paul's responding to. He continues to respond to that in our unit of Scripture today. As he responds to this charge that God's word has failed, of course his answer is no, it hasn't failed. And he responds with this absolute sovereignty of God response that we've heard about the last two weeks. When he responds with this absolute sovereignty of God response, then there's another challenge that comes his way. Is God unjust then? How can this be? How can there be so few, particularly so few Jews, who are believing in Jesus as the Messiah? So these are the problems that he's dealing with, and he's continuing to deal with this in today's unit of Scripture. So let's turn our attention there to verse 24. And in fact, I'm going to put verse 24 on the screen in a different translation, probably fairly different than what your translation reads and different than what my translation reads. It's today's English version. Let's just look at verse 24 together on the screen, and you can look at your translation as well. For we are the people he called, Paul says. We, including himself, Jewish Paul, we are the people he called, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. And I put this on common translation up here because there's debate about verse 24. There's debate about lots of verses in the Bible, right? But there's debates about how to translate verse 24. And in my translation, and probably in your translation, if you look at your translation now, it probably has a question mark at the end, and it's probably part of the sentence of verse 23. 
And that's one way to understand verse 24. It's not too different, but another way to understand verse 24 is it's the beginning of somewhat of a new thought. There is continuity with what's gone before, but there's kind of a new sentence here. And it's not a question. And that's the way I understand verse 24, and that's the way many others understand it. That's why I've put it on the screen. You guys tracking with me so far today? So let me just take a little aside here and encourage you as you're like, well, how do we know? One of the best things that we can do when we are really studying the scriptures, when we are really digging in, is to look at multiple translations. And the very least that will happen is you will become aware of the different ways to either interpret or translate passages. So, you know, there's websites you can do this at. You probably have multiple Bibles at your home. You can do it old school way. You guys remember, like, books you take off the shelf and put, put down? You know, or you can use screens and look at different translations. Um, but just one other little aside as we get back to this text, just, just to encourage you and help you understand what's going on here. When Paul sat down to write this book of Romans, which he most likely spoke to a secretary that we call an amanuensis. That document, we call that the autograph. And in the first century, things were very, very different than the way this Bible's put together, and they're very, very different than the way our Greek New Testaments today are put together. And let me just tell you briefly a little bit about that so you understand how we get to this and, and if in your Bible, like mine, has a question mark and it continues from the previous sentence. So in the first century, there had yet to be the development of capital and small letters. So that didn't exist. There was no such thing as a small letter or a capital letter. There was only letters, what we call an uncial script. So if you're like asking the question, well, was this capitalized in the original? There, there, there was no such thing as capitals. There also was no such things as periods or question marks. So when Paul or Paul's secretary wrote this out, there, there's no capitals, no small letters. There's no periods, there's no semicolons, there's no question marks, there's no punctuation. And there's not even space between the words. So those of you who've been to a museum, you'll see like a, an ancient manuscript of, of, say, the Greek New Testament, and it's just a bunch of letters, row after row after row. So they have got to figure out where does this word end, where does that word begin? Where does this paragraph begin? Where does this paragraph end? That's what our translators have done, and they sometimes come to different conclusions. Now, it was a little academic, but did you guys get all that? Okay. Let's come back, to, come back to preaching here and come back to verse 24. So what Paul is saying in verse 24 is, we are the people of God. There is this new way of thinking about God's people. And he is speaking especially to Jewish Christians here. And he's saying, we come from Jews and from non-Jews, from Jews and from Gentiles. Please hear this. Please understand this. This is what Paul is trying to say to Jewish believers in Yahweh, but believers who have accepted the Son of Yahweh, the Son of God Jesus, to their own eternal peril, Paul is trying to say the people of God is going to look differently. And yet there is some similarity to the people of God in the way that it has been. So what is going on here is Paul is going to remind particularly his first century Jewish audience that the people of God 
in both covenants, Old Covenant, New Covenant, are a multi-ethnic people. That even before the coming of Jesus, even under the Torah, even under the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh, God redeemed and called people from outside the nation of Israel, outside of ethnic Israel, to be his children, to be part of his family. And so this is part of his argument to try to help those who are discouraged, really discouraged about what they're seeing about the community of faith, about the people of God. This Jewish heritage, this temple worship, the celebration of the Passover, all of these things that are part of us. You mean, overwhelmingly, they've, they've rejected the Messiah. How can this be? And so God is reminding those folks and reminding us today that in both covenants, his people is made up of people from all ethnic backgrounds in all sorts of situations. So let me go back into the Old Covenant briefly and just talk to you a little bit, give you an example from one of my favorite, one of the most beautiful and enjoyable books of the Bible to read, uh, the, the book of Ruth. Uh, an example of God's people, even in ancient Israel, being a multi-ethnic people. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, throughout the book of Ruth, Ruth is, is, is tagged as something. She's called, um, how many times is it? I have a note here, six times. She's called Ruth the, the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess. Six times in this four-chapter book, she's called Ruth the Moabitess. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, unless you know the background of the Moabite people. And some of you do. And let's just say it's a pretty nasty background. So when, when an Israelite is reading Ruth the Moabitess, what is coming to mind is the Moabite people descended from Lot and his oldest daughter. How would you like that tag on your name? That's the tag throughout the book of Ruth that the Holy Spirit inspired to be on Ruth's name. Why? Well, notice in verse 13, this non-Israelite Ruth, the Moabitess, is no longer called the Moabitess. After six times. There is a theology at work here. Her identity is not in being a physical descendant of Lot and his oldest daughter, but her identity is being in a child of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And she is part of an interracial marriage, a Moabitess and a super wealthy Israelite landowner. Maybe it might be stretched to say he was part of the 1%. I don't think it had that back then, but he, he was a well-to-do guy, Boaz. And he married this Moabitess. She's not identified any longer at the end of the book of Ruth as the Moabitess because God's people, even in ancient Israel, are a multi-ethnic people. This is a pretty awesome story with some really ugly background to it, but an awesome story because God has chosen people like Ruth from this heritage and lineage, and people cared so much more about this back then. And God is saying, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. She's mine. 
And then what happens at the end of the book of Ruth? This, this, is, this story doesn't end. But these people, the Israelites who carry so much, care so much about lineage, to this day, the Jewish people today care so much about lineage, what does the author of Ruth do at the end of the book of Ruth but throws in there some lineage and says, guess who's going to come from this unthinkable marriage of a prominent Israelite and this Moabitess, who's going to come, the, ga- the greatest king in Israel? King David is going to be a descendant of this. Back to verse 24, Paul is saying, we are the people of God he called, not only from among the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, even from the Moabite people. I redeem even that, that terrible thing that went on. I love people. It doesn't matter who your mother and father are. It doesn't matter what your family background is. We all have dysfunctional families. I mean, some are really out there. Lot and his eldest daughter. I mean, that is out there. But it's just a question of how dysfunctional is your family and mine. We're all from dysfunctional families. We're all from troubled families. So one more thing as I'm talking about this wonderful truth about Ruth, who is no longer identified as the Moabitess in verse 13 of the book. Not only does the author of Ruth go out of her way to say, hey, this is the lineage of King David of Israel. But have you read Matthew 1, the genealogy there? Who's in that genealogy? What we expect are men, prominent men. But Ruth and Boaz are there in Matthew chapter 1. The Messiah, Jesus, lineage goes through this interracial couple that goes back to Lot and his eldest daughter, the Messiah. This is all coming out of verse 24. The people of God in both covenants are a multi-ethnic people. So this is all very interesting. This, This is more than interesting. Maybe this is even fascinating to you what God has done. But this is where preaching gets hard. So what does this have to do with you and me? Like the point of of me preaching sermons, of anyone preaching sermons, isn't for us to learn interesting things about the Bible. Although it's good to learn interesting things about the Bible and then just worship God. That's good. But he wants to change us. He wants us to be transformed by his word. So when we read a passage like this, we shouldn't just figure stuff out and go, man, that's awesome and worship God. That's, that's a starting point. But what does he want to say to me in 2021 out of this particular passage in Romans 9 that would be so easy to just kind of skip over this paragraph? But there's so much in this little paragraph, 24 to 29. And I think what he wants to say to me and what he wants to say to you is we ought not to expect certain people to be part of God's family, and we ought not to expect certain people not to be part of God's family. And I think even though almost none of us here are Jewish Christians who directly deal with this particular issue, I want to suggest almost every one of us here, through our own biases and our own stereotypes, we see certain folks and and we don't really think they're going to become a child of God. And we ought to think that way. 
We ought to think that way. So several of you uh, over time have recommended a book to me to read that I haven't read yet. I was looking at it yesterday, and it's, it's moved its way way up on my to-read list. I don't know if you have a to-read list, but I have kind of an embarrassingly long one that I will never read all the books on my to-read list. I, th- I have an electronic one. I think there's like 200 books on my to-read list. I won't read all those. But, this, but I will read the ones that are at the very top of the list. And this book just moved its way up yesterday to very near the top of the list of my next book to read. Some of you have read this. Who's, who's read this book here? So Christy's told me about it. A few of you have read this book. So I'm talking about him right now because not, not because m- most of us here in the foothills do not have Muslim neighbors. But if we did, this is relevant. And, and then more broadly, I want us to be thinking about neighbors, coworkers, family members, and friends who need to know Christ, that we might think, really? That they're going to come to know the Lord? Yes. Yes. So this is what one of the things he writes about to, to the church about how to interact with Muslims. I was looking at his book yesterday. I haven't read it yet, but I was looking at it. He says this. On the rare occasion that someone does invite a Muslim to his or her home, differences in culture and hospitality may make the Muslim feel uncomfortable. And the host must be willing to ask, learn, and adapt to overcome this. There are simply too many barriers for Muslim immigrants, talking about to our country or to the West, to understand Christians and the West by sheer circumstance. They're not going to just happen to come to know Christ by moving to America. Only the exceptional blend of love, humility, hospitality, and persistence can overcome these barriers, and not enough people make the effort. So part of the takeaway from this passage that we could just learn interesting facts about and move on is God is saying, I'm creating a new people. This isn't really that new, but I often am going after people and bring people into the family of God that you would least expect. And he wants us to be a part of that mission. Galatians 3.28 describes what it's like to be in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek meaning there is neither Jew or non-Jew. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These are barriers, racial, economic, and gender. And throughout the history of church, of the church, there have been ideas of Jews. I mean, it's interesting, in the first century, the idea was on the ground was Gentiles, Really? are going to dominate the church, it's going to be Jewish. Now, if we look at more recent church history, embarrassingly, it's been the opposite. And there's been anti-Semitism in the church and, and, and the persecution of Jews instead of prayer for them to come to know Christ. So there is, there is no ethnicity required or necessary to be a child of King Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or Moabitess or Israelite or American or I don't know what gender, I don't know, I don't know what ethnicity I am. I, I'm so mixed. Some of us are, are like that in America especially. It, it doesn't matter. Slave or free. These are economic categories. The church of Jesus is made up of the poor and the wealthy, of the Boazes. Uh, of, of people whose, whose net worth is just what's on their body. That's all, that's all I have. Male and female. 
you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the people of God in both covenants are a multi-ethnic people, and I'm suggesting the way we apply this passage today is for us to be willing to believe that God wants to redeem people that we might think are never going to be redeemed. All right, I'm following my pattern of taking a ton of time on point one. We'll pick it up here, and let's move on and look at verses 25 and 6. I hope your uh, Bibles are still open and your devices are open. So he's, he says this sentence. There's, there's continuity with verse 23, but not quite as much, as I think, as most of our translations have it. And now he goes to quote Hosea in verse 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Again, what Paul is doing here is he's defending these accusations that the word of God has failed, that God is unjust. He's using Hosea to do that. So he quotes first Hosea 2.23, and then let's look at the next verse 26 where he's quoting Hosea 1.10. Interestingly, he quotes 1.10 second, 2.23 first. So in verse 26, quoting Hosea 1.10, he says, it will happen that in, that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So what's going on here? Who, who is, the question that we should be asking is, who is the you? In verse 26, when it says, you are not my people, who is the you? Or back up to verse 25, I will call them my people who are not my people. Who is he referring to here? Who he is referring to, if we go back and study Hosea, are the ten northern tribes, not Judah and Benjamin, but the other ten tribes of Israel. And they have rebelled against God. And so he speaks judgment upon them. Then he's saying, those people who were my people, Israel, who I've spoken judgment on, those ten tribes, and they are no longer my people, I am actually going to show mercy at some point later, generations later, and they are going to be my people. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And this should ring some bells for those of us who have been studying Romans 9. If you look back to verse 6, it says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So Paul is making the same point he made in verse 6 by pointing the reader to what was going on centuries ago through the prophet Hosea. And this history of the ten tribes being judged, they're not my people anymore. They've rebelled against me. They don't have faith. They are not my people. But then later, he's going to make them his people. Again, the absolute sovereignty of God and his sovereign grace. And not all of Israel is Israel. In other words, ethnic Israel is not equal to spiritual Israel or the children of God. So this is what he is doing in verses 25 and 26. We might summarize it this way. Central to our faith is grace, not race. This is what he is saying. So why is he specifically quoting it here? If you're not tracking with me, let me summarize it this way. God's calling of mostly non-Jews. We're at the point in church history here in the first century where the the people of God are going to become predominantly non-Jewish, and that has continued to today for 2,000 years. God's calling of mostly non-Jews instead of mostly Jews in the first century operates on the same principle as his promised renewal to the ten tribes of Israel back in Hosea's day that he spoke judgment upon and then later returned grace and mercy to. Did you get all that? That was a lot. 
So we'll have a remedial service afterwards for some of you. Um, this is a short passage. He's showing parallels between the people of God in the first century and the people of God in ancient Israel. And God's sovereign, absolute sovereignty is what's being emphasized throughout all of this. As much as we would like him to be emphasizing something else, he's emphasizing his grace and his sovereignty and that he judged the Jews, he restored the Jews, meaning the ten tribes, the ten uh, tribes that are spoken of in Hosea, and he restored them. And the Gentiles, by and large, many of them were outside the people of God. There are exceptions, like Ruth. But now we're coming into a season where the, the people of God are going to be overwhelmingly Gentile. Central to our faith is grace, not race. That's verses 25 and 6. So he's quoting Hosea there, and then he goes and quotes Isaiah in this short passage. Verse 27 and 28. Let's look at that together. Isaiah cries out, Concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Only the remnant. And that's an important word, that word remnant. And you could say that in many ways this is kind of the theme of this unit, that there is a remnant, that God's mercy comes no matter how bad things look. Um, there is God's mercy and there is a remnant. Let me just put that up there. So that's point number three. In the worst of times, God faithfully preserves a remnant. Now for us, as non, most of us as non-Jewish people, like what do you mean the worst of times? The church is exploding. All this stuff is going on in the first century. So from the Jewish perspective, the, 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 there's, there's some negativity to this. Like, are you kidding me? The, the, there's going to be churches with, with, with no Jewish people and, and all of this going on? So, so there's a remnant, both of, of Ethnic Israelites, like Paul, and there's a remnant, of, uh, and more than a remnant, there's all kinds of people that are coming to know the Lord who are outside of ethnic Israel. God faithfully preserves a remnant. That's what he's going to Isaiah and showing that's the way that it was, and that's the way that it is. God is sovereign. There's always a remnant. Look at verse 28. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Now, it doesn't feel like speed and finality to us. These are tough days that we live in. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing many, many people praying that prayer at the end of Scripture, come Lord Jesus. Anybody been praying that a little bit more <laughs> recently? So it doesn't feel like speed and finality to us. The restoration of the new heavens and new earth and everything being made right. No cancer, no COVID, no, uh, no oppression of, of the weak and the poor and the needy. We long for that world. We don't live in that world. But verse 28 is saying, the Lord is carrying out his sentence on the earth, and he's doing it. Paul is reinforcing his answers to those two complaints. The word of God has failed, and that God is not just. He is just. The word hasn't failed. There has always been a remnant. This is what he is saying in uh, verses 27 and 28. In the worst of time, God faithfully preserves a, a remnant. So there's a danger here with remnant theology. And some of you are very familiar with the danger that I'm going to talk about. The danger of remnant theology is this spirit, us four, no more, Johnny, bolt the door. Um, and that's kind of a joke, but this isn't really a joke, right? Some of you here today have been part of in your past, 
some of you shared this with me, have been part of a, a cult or a church that either doctrinally or sociologically kind of has the spirit of, hey, we, we've got it all together. We're the remnant. All these other churches are lost. We've got it. You know what I'm talking about here? So this is a dangerous application of the biblical teaching of a remnant. Is there a remnant here? Yes. Only the remnant will be saved. This is, in many ways, the primary point in this unit of Romans 9 and in all of Romans 9. That ethnic Israel is not equal to spiritual Israel. And there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. That would be a way to summarize this. So what do we do with that? We, we don't go home and just cower and think we're the remnant and let's just get ready and, and, and fill our garages with food and water. And if you're doing that, I'll, well, you can join the remedial class afterward. We'll talk with you about that. I mean, it's good to have some provisions for a fire and all that. You guys know what I'm talking about here? I'm talking about people who are like, have lost it and think they're the remnant and everyone else is lost. That is a wrong way to go with this theology of the remnant. You shouldn't count on me saying that. You should be asking yourselves, well, does the scripture actually teach that? I think we are the remnant. And I think, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, and all those in authority. Let me just pause here. I'm quoting this for what I haven't read yet, but let me just comment on this. Because, gosh, do we need to pray for those in authority. We need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our governor. Whether he's our governor for a few weeks or for a few years. We are commanded to pray for him. Requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Everyone. Whoever our president, whoever our governor is. So that, that's what's going on here. For all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all good godliness and holiness. Gosh, we could preach a whole series on that. <laughs> those few sentences. The mission of the church is to pray for our leaders so that we would live in peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. But that's not the reason why I'm quoting this passage. It's the next sentence. This is good. And pleases God our Savior. This is, the, this is why I went to this passage. Not because of an election coming, because of this phrase. Who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He is a multi-ethnic, global God. And if we happen to be living in San Francisco or some urban center in, in America, or visiting there, I'm saying this because we don't generally see this here in the foothills. And you see a woman walking by in a, in a, in a burqa or, or, or covered. She needs Christ. He wants all men, meaning all women, all children, all boys, all girls, everyone, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So this theology of the remnant is in tension with passages like this. In basically every passage in Scripture, almost, has another passage that keeps it in tension. 
So remnant, yes. Let's not have a distorted response to the remnant. All right, I think we're just about done. We haven't looked at verse 29, right? Is that where we are, church? Verse 29, let's finish up. So he's quoted, he quoted Hosea and then twice, and now he's quoted Isaiah twice. This is the kind of thing rabbis do, the kind of thing Jewish people do, quoting the Torah, quoting uh, the prophets, the minor prophets here. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Paul is quoting Isaiah to t- try to shift the perspective of Jewish believers in Yahweh who have rejected the Messiah, who think, really, this is the direction that things are going? No way. And, and to put it another way, there's a sense of entitlement that because we are ethnic Israel, this is what's coming our way. Paul is saying, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and are deserving judgment, regardless of ethnicity. And again, the absolute sovereignty of God is emphasized. We would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. You and I should be included in that we. Paul is included in that we. We would have been judged were it not for the sovereign grace of God. And the sovereign grace of God For those of you that know the unpleasant story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he preserved from that Lot and his two daughters because they had it all together, right? Lot and his daughters had life all together. So they they were saved. They were so messed up. But God's sovereign grace showed favor on Lot and his two daughters, and one day from their descendants, this great King David would come. And from that great King David, there would come a Messiah. So, the people of God are not primarily characterized by having it all together, but by a lineage, not of ethnicity, but of God's sovereign grace given to undeserving people. That's me. That's you. That's our message to whomever it is. And specifically, this passage would want us to think about who are the people that I am overlooking. So the danger in me talking about Muslims here is almost none of us, there's a couple of us, almost none of us are rubbing shoulders with Muslims. So let's put that aside, except for those few of you that are. Who is it that you're rubbing shoulders with, that you overlook, that God wants to be a part of his family? If you're in the upper tax bracket in our country, when is the last time you had someone from this tax bracket to your dinner table? Because God wants to change you by having that person at your dinner table. If you're in the lowest tax bracket, when is the last time you had someone from the upper tax bracket at your dinner table? Because God wants to change you by interacting with them. And God wants us to reach everyone regardless of whether they're slave or free or middle class or whatever. There are no barriers. We are one in Christ Jesus. 
we are not characterized by having it all together. It's God's sovereign grace. And I think the practical outcome of this passage for you and me is to be asking, who is it? Who is it that I'm overlooking? The Jews were overlooking Gentiles. They were overlooking Moabite people. They were overlooking the pagans in Rome. They're part of the family of God. They're coming in. Who are we overlooking? God, give us eyes and hearts for them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word speaks to us today. In many ways, our situation is different, but in other ways, our situation is exactly the same. We have preconceived ideas about who we would interact with, who we would eat with, who you would use us to influence and to share the gospel with and to make disciples of. Free us from any barriers that are inside of us that would keep us from making disciples of all peoples everywhere, especially those that you have put in each of our spheres of influence. Help us, God, in whatever ways we can to be ambassadors for the good news of Jesus dying in our place, raising on the third day, being raised on the third day, and giving us abundant life here in this earth and eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. We thank you that it's by your sovereign grace that you've reached down to those of us here today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.